Well, good morning, Church of the Red Door. It is morning. It's not afternoon. The afternoon crew will be coming in here a little bit. Uh, a couple things to uh, get us going here. On February 9th, write it down, put it in your brain. No, write it down. Don't just put it in your brain. Uh, we are going to have right here, it's a Sunday, February 9th at 4.30, as I was told. If, if that's different, somebody needs to come up here and tackle me. Uh, we're going to have a town hall meeting in here, right in here. And uh, if we have to do overflow or whatever, we will. We're going to have a town hall meeting as it relates to property and everything else that is going on right now. And so this is going to be your opportunity. Uh, I haven't, we haven't really gone through it. We'll give you a little bit more instruction. You'll have a chance to have an open mic, kind of Phil Donahue, kind of running through the audience with a mic kind of thing. Or uh, we'll, you'll just write down some of your questions. Anything you have as it relates to property, the building, the vision that was cast. If you haven't seen that, you have to see Kristen or Danielle or somebody, Randy, one of the, anybody out front. And they will give you the link to the vision presentation uh, uh, because of what's going on. So we're going to have a town hall. You'll be able to, we'll either be able to answer your questions, you'll be able to ask those questions. We're going to have people, we're just going to, it's not going to be another vision presentation. It's going to be talking, we need to raise money, and this is what we're asking the Lord for, and we're praying, and I hope you're, all of us are praying. I hope all of us are on the same page. We need to raise money for the land so we can buy the land so we can get through this escrow and get the land behind us. And then come November, uh, give us the full ability this year to do all our due diligence, get exactly the number of seats and everything else we need, we'll actually then do a capital campaign in November. We need to get the land now, and we have some substantive commitments already. Our uh, elders, our executive team, our trustees, we're all praying, holding it before the Lord. Lord, what would you have us get? Lord and I have been praying about this. Lord, what would you have us uh, give? And uh, Lord, we want to. I mean, we're, I'm excited. I'm excited about seeing this thing be built. And, you know, we've got a little bit of fallout, but I think the vast majority uh, of you have just keep coming to me and say, I am so excited about the possibility of us having our own facility and having a church. So uh, if that's your heart, you're definitely going to be there on February 9th. All right? Is that good? Did I miss anything? All right. I, prayer. And then we're going to not quite get through the wilderness again, but we're going to work towards it. It's going to be a good morning. It's going to be a good morning, especially if uh, Jesus... Uh, will be with us. And he says, we're two or more gathered in my name. Lord, we're in your name. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for my friends here at the early service. Lord, we, we pray that you would be with us today, that you would ignite us. I was praying with Tess on the way here. Lord, have your presence be among us. Uh, show us, uh, relate to us, each one individually. We all need something different this morning. Some are in a celebratory mood this morning. Some came maybe uh, not so celebratory, maybe struggling, uh, really struggling in some area of their life. Lord, it's only your spirit that can in some way speak to us individually and give us something. Uh, as you told us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Why? So just like bread does to the physical body, it gives strength and vitality, Lord, that you would give us your spiritual bread. You are the manna that came down from heaven. And in doing so, it would ignite us and give us life in your name. Lord, we're asking you for that. We, we may have come in here discouraged, depressed maybe, even struggling with some real random thoughts. And Lord, your spirit can replace that in a moment. Suddenly, we can just have hope. Uh, I can't do that, but your word can do that. So Lord, give us this day our daily bread. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this is that River Jordan that we've been trying to cross, and we will get there. Here's the point. You don't want to cross the Jordan ill-prepared. We're going to get to that hopefully in a couple of weeks. We'll see their very first encounter at Jericho, and there were a few that were unprepared. You don't want to go into a spiritual battle unprepared. Let me say that again. Uh, First of all, Paul says what? Our battle, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That doesn't mean way out there somewhere. It's just a dimension, a thin veil that covers the earth, and there are demonic, there is angelic, there's God's spirit. There's a whole realm that's, to us, very, very real because we can feel it and we can sense it and we know it's true, but you don't want to enter that fray ill-prepared. So we're going to camp out again on the other side, still in the wilderness, but it's important for you to see. And I, I think it'll take this week and next week. I, I hope next week to give you some real practical ways, practical ways in which you can remove the idolatry that exists in all of our hearts, those pulls back toward the seen realm. What are those things that pull you back towards the seen realm where you're not living in constant communication, constant connection with your Creator? Paul says, I pray without ceasing. Do you pray without ceasing? Does everything run through the grid of the kingdom? 1 Corinthians 9.23, we looked at it last week. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10.31, I do all things for the glory of God. Everything I do is for the glory of God. Does everything run through that or is your life still segmented? With idolatry, it segments our lives into a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and then we do Jesus over here, and then we, it's really compartmentalized. And what Jesus says is, I, I don't want your life to be compartmentalized anymore. Uh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be cross-bearing. Pick up your cross. But in doing so, you're going to be able to be completely riveted on your Father. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and then everything else works its way out. But we like to compartmentalize because we're so beholden to those things that we've relied on, even though they are unsure. They don't give us the kind of satisfaction they promise. So we're going to look at that today. I'm going to take you to John chapter 12. Um, it was, I didn't intend to go this way, but I, this last week it was just really, I had, I'm doing a few studies uh, through the week on the gospel of John and in doing so, I was kind of looking back, and, and all of a sudden, I came to John 12, and I said, this is a perfect example of ways where they could not hear because of the idolatry that lived in their heart. Now, I'll give you a little bit of backdrop. Uh, John chapter 11 is Lazarus. It's the, it's the big, it's the big, you know, wow, he raised somebody from the dead. I mean, unbelievable that Jesus would do that, and he went right into the place that they were trying to kill him. Lazarus lived in Bethany, which just kind of overlooks the old city. If you've been to Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, Bethany's just kind of been absorbed into uh, the city, what you would consider Jerusalem now. But Bethany was just very near. And so Jesus knew in going down there he was uh, putting his life at risk. But what did he do? He, he's going down there to raise a life. He knows he's going to. He waits three days until he's dead, by the way. And and then this is the response to that. And then he goes back to Bethany, and evidently he went back out into the wilderness for a little while, and then came, comes back again in chapter 12, 
And he walks into the house and, and Mary is anointing his feet. And we have our first encounter with somebody who's struggling with idolatry. It's clear as it can possibly be. Here's a guy, Judas Iscariot, who was walking three, three and a half years with Jesus. He saw everything that was going on. He saw the miraculous walking on the water. He saw the, he saw the bread and the fish multiplied. He saw or the dead raised. He, I mean, you want to talk about a front row seat. He had it. And yet, he couldn't enter in. Well, John chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, he, he, had, been, he had been there a little early for what we would call Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. And then he, the Bible just simply says, was this all completely in order? I think so. I think he went back to where John had been baptizing, uh, and he was in wilderness. And then he waited, and then waited for Passover, and then re-entered Jerusalem, knowing, again, that he was taking his life into his own hands. Well, in fact, he knew it. Why? Because he was going there for that purpose, to lay down his life. He came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the resurrected Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So... So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. I mean, would that just be weird? Let's stop for a second. Sometimes you just read the Bible, and it's like, oh, yeah, well, there's Lazarus. This guy was dead for three days, and now they're eating together. I mean, can you get that through your brain? I mean, that's who we're worshiping here, Jesus, who raised him from the dead. I mean, this is... This is an historical event. This is some not made-up mythology that existed way back when. I mean, they were sitting there reclining, having dinner with a guy who had been dead for three days. Don't let that escape your notice. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Just, I want you to try, try to breathe that in for a second. Here's Mary. Wow. Here's Lazarus, whom she loved, raised from the dead. And what's the response to this resurrection? I mean, because then Jesus left after the resurrection, and now she's come back over Passover. What's her response? Worship. I mean, what else can you do? This guy has the power of life and death. I mean, my goodness. And so she's, she's, on her, she's on the ground. She's, you know, she, uh, uh, probably 11 months wages is what I've read, somewhere around that. I mean, imagine, this is expensive. Anointing her feet, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled, filled with a fragrance of perfume. But Judas, and he's... Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? No, no, stop for a second. That sounds very religious, right? I mean, wait a minute. I mean, we got to be good stewards of this stuff. I mean, what are you doing? Mary, you could have sold this. Think how many people we could have fed. I mean, Mary... You know, the religious, you can, you can dress up in religious garb and have your whole religious little lifestyle and everything, but you can be hiding idolatry in your heart. 
You don't believe that? Why do you think churches split all the time? Why do people come in and out, then they get angry with somebody, and then they go somewhere else, and they get angry with somebody else, and they go somewhere else? I mean, of course, we can, we can dress this up, but you do realize, and we talk about this all the time, if you're new, this is a hospital. We're all being repaired, being restored, being made into the likeness of Jesus. But you can dress it up very religiously, and he did. Well, we could have given that to the poor people. Of course, what was in his heart? Well, here it is. Now, he said this not because he was really that concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. Why are you a thief? And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was being put into it. Now, had he, had he been three years with Jesus and, and the other disciples been fed? Right? All the 5,000 fed, the 4,000 fed. I mean, do you think Judas was the only one that didn't have a take, a little cut of the food and the everything else over these last few years? Was he suffering? No, he needed a little extra. He needed a little extra. Now, he would have justified that, I'm sure, and probably dressed it up in religious garb as well. But he used to take a little out of the pilfer. Now, what do you think goes through his mind when he's doing that? He has every justification. We, look, we have a million justifications for greed, don't we? We can, all of us. Well, you know, I this, and I need a little bit more of that, and then if I had, you know, this, and then all of a sudden we just, our lifestyle just elevates and elevates and elevates, and we just always, we just have every justification. And then when it leads to thievery, <clears throat> therefore Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it up for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. He set Judas straight. He knew what was in Judas's heart. He knew the scripture. He is the word. You know, the Bible already said that he would be betrayed. For I mean, if you go back and read in the Levitical law, what is a bond slave worth? 30 pieces of silver. You think that was by chance that a bond slave, the value of a bond slave? So if your ox was out in the, out in the field and it gored one of your friend's servants and you needed to give rec, you know, some consideration there, it's 30 pieces of silver. He had a bond slave and he was gored to death. What was it worth, 30 pieces of silver? Why? Because Jesus came. Although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but became a bond slave, Paul told the church at Philippi. Interesting. So here, just in John chapter 12, we have an idol that distracts Judas so much that he can't see God in human flesh, and he was with him for three years. You can go to church all your life and have all the idolatry right there. If you can walk with Jesus for three years and see all those miracles and still have an idol block your ability to see the kingdom and to see his king... Is that possible? Yes, it's possible. was the case with Judas. So let's go on to verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. Uh, they'd already, if you go back, seven, he was in chapter 7, he was there for another feast, and they were there, the Feast of Booths. And he continues on through there. These are about the various feasts in, in the Gospel of John. And uh, they were already after him. But now we get an indication as to what their heart was. So the large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. They had heard the stories whom he had raised from the dead. 
But the chief priests, stop for one second. Who are the chief priests? Well, we don't know exactly who the chief priests are because uh, in, there was the Alexandrian Jews who gave us the Septuagint. That was a couple hundred years before Jesus. And then, of course, there were the high priests that was part of the Sadducees and there were the Pharisees. But then there was a non-biblical thing called the Sanhedrin that was around during the time of Jesus that wasn't part of the Levitical law or commandments of God, but it began to come together and then there were maybe some chief priests among them. But I don't think it was just the Levitical tribe here. It's just So it's a little bit esoteric, but just know this, they were leaders among the Jews in their religious pursuits. So the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death. I mean, come on, is that not? That to me is unbelievable. Jesus comes in, the poor guy dies, and then Jesus comes in and raises him from the dead, and they are so blocked in their minds that they're going to try to put him to death again. I mean, think about that for a second. How, how clouded is your vision? If you do this, what's blocking it? Well, we get an indication. Because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and they were believing in Jesus. We're losing our power base, our idol. What Jesus said it, you people who love respectful greetings in the marketplace. Can that still be you? Can you get involved in the kingdom enough to where all of a sudden your friends or maybe, you know, wherever you are, friends at work, friends at the club, friends doing bridge, friends or whatever, and <laughs> we're not going to associate with him anymore. Would, is that idol of the approval of men and the, and the power that comes with that? Is that so entrenched in your heart you can't do what Jesus tells you to do or hang around with other Jesus people? Be careful. That was their problem. We're going to lose our power. Power was their idol. Go to verse 12. Jesus now entering into Jerusalem. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118. And they're calling, King of Israel, King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written. Now he's going to quote Zechariah the prophet. says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So Zechariah, about 500 to 600 years in advance of Jesus, had, had seen this vision of the king of Israel coming in, but he was on a donkey. Not on a steed with his powerful army behind him, on a donkey, humble and mounted on a donkey. What was the prophet seeing 600 years before the time of Jesus? Jesus, that's what he was seeing, a humble king that had come to lay down his life as a sacrificial lamb, not as a conquering king. Necessi All the prophets saw it, two comings of Jesus, right? Jesus ben Joseph, the one who would have to suffer like Joseph, and then the Messiah ben David, or David, which was what? The one that would come as the conquering king. The, the prophets all saw two comings. So this is not like a uniquely Christian made-up thing, or Jesus really didn't cut the mustard, so let's Christians, let's just make it up that there's going to have to be a second coming of Jesus. Since he failed in his first coming, and he killed him, he clearly wasn't the Messiah, so we'll make up a second coming. Now, all the Jewish prophets saw two comings. First one mounted on a donkey, 
humble, and then one coming in great power on the, king of, on the throne of David. These things his disciples didn't understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him because they had heard he had performed the sign, the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that they're not doing any good. Look, the whole world's going after him. So here they are with their power thing, you know, slipping away. And they're trying to, you know, oh my gosh, we're losing our power base. What, what, what will we do? I, I, maybe we'll even be out of a job if enough people stop, start following him. Let's kill Lazarus. Let's kill Jesus. Let's, let's get rid of this whole thing. But what about the people? That's what I want to think about. What are they doing? The, this is what we call Palm Sunday, right? They're coming in and they're throwing, you know, blessed see, they're quoting this messianic psalm that had been written a thousand years before Jesus. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're, they're, it's a triumphal entry. He's coming in as a king and yet he's on a donkey. But okay, anyway, you know, that's okay. He's still the king. He's still the king. And that same crowd, just a few days later, who do you want me to release to you, Pilate would say. It was Barabbas. What do I do with this guy? Crucify him. Crucify him. You talk about a fickle crowd. Why so fickle? Jesus didn't fit into their politics. Call this the political idol. Now, this is going to strike home for some of us. <clears throat> I need to pray. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you come and help us. Now, let me tell you something. You know, I, I, uh, you, you know, we may feel like, well, we live in the desert, and we're just a bunch of white people with money, so we think very cleanly about politics. Uh, but we're not all white people here, if you haven't noticed. And we, we have, we have a very, not, we don't, we're not that diverse. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, and so I remember. I hope Robert doesn't mind telling. I went out. Robert has his homeless ministry, and I love Robert. And we went out, and I, I just, I love going out with Robert. And I, we went out to lunch one time, and we went and saw a movie. I took him to a movie, and and um, and I said, "Well, what do you think about that movie?" Because there were all kind of racial, you know, overtones. And and how do you view the world? Now, Robert loves Jesus. I mean, if you can't see that, you're crazy. I mean, he just told me about a lady that he led down under a tree or something out in the middle of nowhere to Jesus this week. And, I mean, he was just telling all this unbelievable ministry he's doing. But I'm not, I guarantee you he sees the world very differently than I do, and yet we see the world very similarly as it revolves around Jesus, but politically. And so I asked him some questions, and, and I just got a totally... And I just I said, brother, I don't, don't cope this anything. Tell me how you felt about this movie. What happens? How do you feel when you drive through this valley? Tell me how it feels. And da-da-da-da-da-da. And it was just radically different. I'm just like, man, I just live in a cocoon. I don't want politics to cloud me and let politics be an idol. Tim Keller and his book, Counterfeit Gods, which, by the way, if you haven't, I've quoted from him a couple of times. But I had never thought of politics, per se, being an idol. But it really is. It can be. It can be. Now, does this, am I, is Jeff saying be a Democrat? No. Is Jeff saying be a Republican? No. Is Jeff saying not vote? Don't vote? No. I'm not saying any of that. All right, is Jeff saying that one's not better than another? Of course I'm not saying that. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying if you're looking for politics to solve the heart problem, you're looking down the wrong road.
because it's never going to work. He quotes uh, Robespierre, you know, if in 1794, the Maximilian Robespierre, the leader of the French Revolution, said to the, said to the National Convention, this was his quote, what is the goal towards which we are heading? The peaceful enjoyment of liberty and equality. The terror, which is part of the French Revolution, is nothing other than prompt, severe, inflexible justice. However, his reign of terror was so horrendously unjust that Robespierre himself was made a scapegoat and guillotined without a trial. Liberty and equality are obviously great goods, but again, something went horribly wrong. A noble principle became possessed, went insane, and ultimately accomplished the very opposite of the justice the revolutionaries sought. It is a settled tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods, idols, if you will. Here's a couple of signs that Tim Keller talks about as it relates to political idolatry. One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we enter our lives, we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. And if our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame, how difficult, but rather this is the end. There's no hope. He said, this is the reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. He wrote this well before Trump, by the way. <laughs> they became agitated and fearful of the future, and they put all kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that were once reserved for God and the work of the gospel. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a kind of death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything's going to fall apart. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party. Eyes rolling. And instead, focus on the points of disagreement. And the points of contention overshadow everything else and a poisonous environment is created. Another sign of idolatry is that our politics, our opponents are considered to be simply not simply mistaken, but actually evil. We vilify both sides to the point of absurdity. And it's true. It's true. Why? Because we're looking to politics to solve a problem that can only be solved through a new heart and acquiring a new spirit. You need a new heart. You don't just need a new leader. Unless that leader happens to be Jesus, who then has the power and the authority to not only raise you from the dead one day, but to give you a new heart and put his spirit on the inside of you, called the Holy Spirit. Politics got in their way here. Now you go down to verse 37. We'll continue the story. Just John chapter 12. You, I want you to start reading the scripture so when you read the accounts of the gospels and then you see the book of Acts and you see his... Paul's interaction with the people and some people, oh, we're losing our form of, uh, uh, you know, some of these guys were making little idols and then somebody got delivered and they wanted to kill the messengers because it was their money and their power. And you, you can see the same stuff over and over. The human heart clings tenaciously to something they think is going to bring them life. And when it's threatened, they can't even see the truth anymore. That's what idols do. They blind, they deafen, and they enslave. 
They do it every time. Now, verse 37, but although he had performed so many of these signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fill the word of the Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? So Isaiah is writing in advance that Israel is going to reject the Messiah. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah, again, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I would heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, catch this, many even of the rulers believed in him. Hey, I think Jesus is the Messiah. But... Because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Boy, when I read that, my heart leaps, Father, that that wouldn't be a shred of that in my soul. That I would ever withdraw, not talking about Jesus, in any situation that I feel led, but because I'm afraid of what people would say and then align myself with these idolaters who couldn't see anything, although they were very religious. They were believing and yet, I don't want to go public with it. That's why Nicodemus in John chapter 3 goes to him, says, let's meet in the middle of the night so nobody will see. So what do we do with all this? Well, there's all kinds of idols. Uh, sex is one of them. Second Peter 2, verse 1 through 3. Sex can be one. In fact, it, again, in the context of religion, Peter was warning about all these false prophets that were going to come in. And verse 2, uh, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, notice, this is sex as an idol. So we've seen power, we've seen greed, we've seen political idols. All these things were preventing people from seeing Jesus or at least admitting that they even believed. Now the false prophets emerge, verse 1. The false prophets also rose, uh, also rose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So Peter's saying, look, there are going to be false teachers. Just get ready for it. Who will secretly introduce <clears throat> destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bring swift destruction upon themselves. How will they do that? Uh, Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. Jesus was talking more spiritual language, you know, all these other kinds of things. You can go back historically and still exists in the church today, all kinds of heretical stuff. It almost always revolves around who was Jesus. Was he a preexistent, equal with God, or was he just a teacher? Was he a rabbi? Was he just a political figure? Was he a guru? Who was he? Almost all these heresies revolve around denying Jesus as king of kings, lord of lords, and creator of everything. Almost always. And what happens when they do that? Well, many will follow their own sensuality. Aselgia in the Greek, which just means unbridled lust. Look, once you deny Jesus, in a sense, you're turned over. You'll see that in Scripture sometimes. And Paul did it, actually. There was an incestuous relationship in 1 Corinthians 5 in the Corinthian church. And Paul turned him over. In other words, do, do you want to be turned over in, like tormentors and things? When God pulls his umbrella of protection behind you, when there's denial, 
or there's gross sin. You don't want that. Can I just say that again? As a pastor, I'm just begging you, if there's gross sin in your life, at the end of this, sin, at the end of this service, come down here and get prayed for. I'm telling you, come down here and get prayed for. Let's get this thing right. Because, and you say, well, you're being really dramatic this morning. I'm telling you, this is terrifying. And God sometimes, Romans 1, it says he turned them over to their own desires. Sometimes the way, because God loves you, he turns you over. And then you get to run free for all, and which is obviously devastating. But hopefully it will bring you back. And that was Paul's desire for this young man who refused to repent in an incestuous relationship. He wanted him back but he turned him over. Many will follow their own sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned and in their greed. So not only do they have sexual lust, they're also idolaters in terms of greed. These are people in the church. Peter's saying they're going to come in. Don't be surprised. Well, I don't like organized religion because I heard that there was a TV preacher that started sleeping around with his wife. Or I heard that there was another guy that started stealing from the coffers. Or... You don't have to look very far for that. Don't be surprised. And they will exploit you with false words. And their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now, verse 12. But these, these false prophets, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. He compare, Peter compares the false prophets who are idolaters and can't even see and began to deny Jesus in general, even though they're in the spiritual community. He says, be careful, they're like animals. Well, what are animals? Well, so when I get up, I got up this morning, this is a typical morning, and we, you know, now I've told you about all the, and we, we have a kennel now in our house. And uh, for any distraction, in fact, we had to put down our, our little dog that we brought in a month ago. It was really old, and it was on the streets, and we knew he didn't have very long. And uh, it was we, only one month we were with him, and we had to put him down. It was really, really hard. But he, the last three, is actually three weeks. The last three weeks of his life were good. <laughs> we fed him steak. Thanks, Sid Tolls. Sid Tolls is here. Sid, don't be upset, but I'm just telling you, we had little pieces of steak. From Sid gave me some steak, and we, we gave him some steak, and we gave him lasagna, everything your dog shouldn't eat. But he, he was on it. It was dead dog walking. I mean, he was going to the chair, right? So now we're back to only two of the dogs off the streets, but they start scratching, you know, 5, 5.30, and the, you know, I said, oh, gosh, and then, and I go, let them out. You let them out, and then you let them back in. Don't feed them till 6.30. And, but they're just, they're just like food, 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 food. I mean, they can't see anything. There's nothing. There's not even any semblance of them trying to say, well, I really don't care that much about food. Just, just pretend one day that you like me above food. No, they're animals. They're driven by what they're driven by instinctually he's comparing these people in the religious community to being unreasonable unreasoning animals who are only driven by instinct that's what happens when idolatry grabs hold of your heart and that's why we have alcoholism and drug abuse and every other sexual perversion and everything else by the way i was going to go into this deeper on the sex thing and i went on the internet you know sex as a, an addiction and sex as a problem and everything else I just like, it's, 
The world knows it. Right? You, mis, you misuse sex, even completely denying God, like, we have a problem. We have a problem. And so did they. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted as pleasure to revel in the daytime. Now, notice the descriptors of these idolaters. They're already greedy, we know, and they're already into sensuality. They, they lust after everything. Their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery. They're always kind of checking out. It doesn't matter if it's somebody else's spouse. They're always just kind of checking them out. You know, well, maybe the spouse would die. And then maybe, you know, I mean, this stuff starts going through your head if you're looking to that to satisfy you. And that's what they were. Having eyes full of adultery, never ceasing from sin, enticing unstable souls. In fact, they draw other people into their own sin. Having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Wow, Peter, thanks a lot. These are going to be the leaders in the church, some of the false prophets that come up and emerge? Yeah. I'm just giving you a little forewarning. Wolves will come in and they won't spare the flock. Just be cautious. Now, we're not talking about perfect leaders. I'm not a perfect leader. But we try to create an environment, and I certainly had lots of people around me, try to create an environment. I'm not, Paul says, I take heed while I stand lest I fall. So it's not like the bad guys over here and the good guys over here. I know my flesh. I'll battle my flesh till the day I die. And I've had certain struggles in my life. And what do I do to combat it? Transparency, constant communication, constant confession, being rubbing up elbows with other brothers. I don't do this with sisters, with other brothers. So we can, you know, men get together, something dynamic happens. You women are good at getting together. No, not so much. Certainly not talking about our real lives and what's controlling our hearts. A true Christian community, iron sharpens iron. And I'm aware of that. I don't become that guy. I don't be driven by unbridled lust. Become like an animal? Really? Is that what, is that what I envision for my life? Oh, God, anything but. Get down on your knees. Spend time in prayer. So sex can rise to that point. So next, fame and recognition. We saw that a little bit, the power does it work? Does fame and recognition pay off in the end? It, many people are driven by that, and they don't even know what drives them. They just want to be famous until they get famous. And one of the, one of the great joys in my life, I, I say not joy, I, let me rephrase. One of the great things I'm thankful for is having got out of school in Texas at Rice in 1987 or whatever it was, I came out here and I'm in Palm Springs, which is known for a lot of success and celebrity and fame as well. And then if this isn't a, a la-la land enough, then I would spend summers in Aspen, which makes Palm Springs look almost normal. <laughs> Some of the members at our club, you know, Jack Nicholson and this and that. And I got to meet a lot of these people. Political fame and success, Hollywood fame and success. I've certainly been around a lot, of, you know, success in business and everything else. And can I just tell you? It doesn't cut it. In fact, when they finally get it, sometimes there's a great, is this all there was? I sacrificed everything for this. Get away from me. I don't want all these. Why are these people following me around? Because you're famous. It's what you pursued all your life. And you're recognized on the streets. And now they want anything but. Just give me my privacy. It just doesn't pay out. And then finally, um, 
this issue of loving, if I can just find my soulmate. You know how many people do that? Now, this, this may offend you, women, but I'm telling you, romance novels are pornography for women. Women are driven by that picture of an idyllic marriage where, you know, the husband satisfies everything that only God can satisfy. Men are visually driven. Women tend to be driven by the picture in their minds of what that perfect scenario would be. I'm looking for my soulmate. If I just had somebody that understood me, if I just had somebody I could live my life with, if I just had, and you get this picture of how, what this would look like, you know, it just, if it just had a soulmate. Well, Jesus encountered a woman like this. And watch his tactic. I learned a lot from this. John chapter 4, we all know the story very well if you've been around your Bible at all. It's the story affectionately known as the woman at the well. Samaria, she's not even a Jew. She's a part of a mixed race, kind of Jew. And when the Assyrians came in and took over the ten lost tribes of the north, they brought in other kind of ethnicities and there was intermarriage and everything. And they were a half-breed in the minds of the true Jews. They were Samaritans. They're having a conversation. The, by the way, the disciples a little bit later were freaking out because, number one, he was talking to a woman. Number two, he was talking to a Samaritan woman. This was unbelievable. Jesus didn't care. People, all humanity is created in his Father's image, and in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. doesn't matter whether it's male or female. He knows who he's dealing with. So he's having a conversation, and this is how it goes. We'll pick it up here in verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of himself, will never thirst again. Excuse me, will thirst again, the water that they were, the literal water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Could she hear that message? Not quite yet. So what Jesus does is the ultimate physician is he reaches right down in there and he just like that and is going to pull out the idol that exists in her heart. He addresses it immediately. Watch how he does. Otherwise, why would this, what would this have to do with the conversation? He addresses her idol so that she can see that he is the water of life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. And he said, go call your husband. Now, wait a minute. She, they're talking about water. What does a husband have to do with anything? They, she, didn't, she hadn't even talked about her husband. She hadn't talked about anything. He knows exactly why. Because he can read your mail. You're not, holding, you're not hiding anything from God, are you? Uh, go call your husband and come here. Well, he knew that. He knew the real deal. And the woman answered and said, well, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one with whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Hmm. Why? Living water. Thank you, Webby. Drinking living water, right? I'm the water, you'll never thirst again. She goes, I'll take some of that. Ah, go call your husband. First, before you drink this, let's deal with what would block your 
brain. Because when I walk away from here, if I don't address this idol, you can say, I met Jesus, but you won't, you can't see. Because what is it? It deafens you, it blinds you, and it enslaves you. And so I'm going to do a little quick surgery here. You're right. Having a soulmate, like the finally the perfect one, this is the sixth. The same thing's going to emerge as it did in the first five. It's never going to satisfy you. Do you see that? Is that not powerful? And then finally this morning, we'll close with this. The picture of the ultimate tranquility. Did you see the Lord of the Rings? You know, the hobbits, if you haven't seen it, you're going to think, he's crazy. If you haven't seen it, go watch these, this trilogy or whatever it is. I don't know. It may even be more than that now. But it's, it's Tolkien, which is unbelievable. I mean, it's a, it's a picture of the gospel. Maybe we'll do a movie night and we'll just go through the Lord of the Rings. Uh, there'll be a certain age requirement because there's some kind of kind of gross looking stuff that goes on there but this is this is an epic epic deal right the lord of the rings and so the hobbits are always picturing oh if we were only back at the shire if we could only get back to the shire be unbelievable that our, then all of our problems would be solved and it was idyllic i mean this shire was this these little grass things and then these little huts would emerge underneath the grass you know what i'm talking about where the grass is the roof so you got these sloping and flowers, and it's always beautiful weather at the Shire and all this kind of thing, and the hobbits live in there in their home. And I don't have to be out here in this unbelievable battle with these nasty, horrible-looking ox is what they're called. Not ox, but ox. And this mean, vengeful, horrible thing and trying to go through all this battle. Let's just get back to the Shire. And what does the Bible say? Don't be looking for the Shire yet, You'll have that when you die. If you're looking for the perfect life now, you're looking in the wrong place. Why? Because our battle is not against flesh. There's no battles at the Shire. That's why they wanted to go back there. It's peace and it's tranquility and there's no more medical problems and there's no more, right? I mean, that's not their picture of it. I'm trying to get a utopian experience on earth. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But when we imagine that we can get the perfect life with the perfect mate, perfect sex life, perfect amount of money in the bank account, which is never enough, by the way, perfect, 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 then maybe we'll even explore this Jesus thing. And then Jesus comes along and says to the rich young ruler, go sell everything you have and come follow me. Why? Because he's doing surgery. Because he knows the rich young ruler is not going to be able to hear him unless he does a little surgery. I need, you know, go, go get your husband. Even though he knew that she was living with a man that wasn't her husband. A little surgery, a little more surgery over here. Why? Because Jesus is the great cosmic killjoy. Doesn't want me to have a soulmate or money or this or that. I can't believe that Jesus doesn't want me to have all that stuff. And I want that stuff. And Jesus is going, stop. I'm doing this. I'm removing these idols from your heart so you can hear clearly what I'm saying. You can only hear part of what I'm saying right now, if anything. And he does his surgery on you. So what surgery is he doing on you this morning? Are you trying to make your life like it's only going to be in heaven one day where the lion lies down with the lamb and everything else. Let's say you finally get in the perfect house and the perfect place and the perfect and security and money and everything else. 
your, your neighbor's dog's going to bark. <laughs> you know, your knee's going to go out. Your golf game's going to stink, right? Your spouse may die. And now, it's, we're not there yet. We're in a battle in this life. Do you see your life as that? Or something blocking up that message? So well, this last clip, and then I'll have uh, Paul come up. This last clip is important. It's the uh, clip from the gladiator. So Maximus was really... Fun. Now think about the analogy here. That usually the reason some of these movies are very popular is because they have a gospel narrative to them, whether you're aware of it or not. You can see it coursing through the blood of many of these things that have longevity, movies that aren't just some stupid violence or some taken off on our own idolatry. There's something going on here. So he's fighting against a really what is, even though he's the son of, a, of the original king, he's kind of an imposter. Certainly character-wise, he's an imposter, is an imposter. And he's mean-spirited, and he's gross, and he's everything bad. And so he realizes that his life till the end is going to be in a battle. This scene is the end of the battle. Then comes the shire. Then comes the perfect life. Not on this side of your last breath. On the other side of your last breath. Let's watch this clip. Stated. There was a dream that was Rome. It shall be realized. These are the wishes of Marcus Aurelius. Free the prisoners! Go! To 
What's the uh, idol in your heart that needs to be removed? What's the one that's causing the darkness in your life? You know, as I was listening to Jeff and watching this, I thought of that kid's game, Operation. You know, the game where you go and you try to remove body parts and you got to be careful so you don't set off the nose and it lights up. You know, sometimes we need to do surgery on ourselves. And we need to be careful. But there's some things in us that they need to be removed. And once they're removed, then we can have the freedom in Jesus Christ that he's promised each and every one of us. So, Father, I just, as we close this morning, Father, you know that you're doing heart surgery in each and every one in this room, everyone who is listening on live stream and will in the future, Father, come into our hearts. Only you are the one that can professionally and spiritually know exactly where to reach into the darkness in the dark areas of our hearts and souls that need to be released. So, Father, we thank you for that powerful message this morning. Father, we thank you for the movement of your spirit in each of our hearts and in the freedom you are now instilling in so many who are calling upon your name this morning. And all of God's people said...